hey, you know what? If you like this podcast that I appreciate you've not listened to yet because this is right at the start, but if you listen to this and find out you do like it, then afterwards, go onto the computer or phone and search for The Lush Podcast. It's the podcast where Lush, unsurprisingly, The Lush Podcast, talk about the things that we think you'd be interested in hearing. So check it out. It's called The Lush Podcast. And the easy way to remember that, how I remember it, is it's a podcast made by Lush. Cool. Have a listen. I might even host one time. You never know. Probably not after this audition. <sighs> the iconic Polystyrene was one of the great voices of punk rock and has become an inspiration for generations. With her brilliant imagination, highly original songs and perceptive lyrical vision, she had a thrilling day-glow moment in the mainstream before devoting her life to Harry Krishna and occasional solo releases. I was close friends with Polly in the last decade of her life and she gave me this fascinating interview about growing up and her days in X-Ray Specs. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four! first got into with music when we uh, in your youth? <laughs> well, I've always been um, music. I've been doing music since I was at school, since I was five. I started writing songs in the what? playground. Yeah. I started performing in the playground. Yeah. Um, I did, I performed in my school assembly and I was told by my headmaster I had a great future. <laughs> yeah, he was right. <laughs> I think I did the, the boat that they row, which was a Lulu song, I think. The boat oh, right. Went, went rock the ocean. We did that on our last day of primary school. Yeah. So I've just been singing ever since I was a kid. I was in Fringe Theatre. I was in the. Um, so, was, where were you doing Fringe Theatre at? Sorry? Whereabouts was that? Oval House. Right. The Oval House, which is where I met my manager. He was at film school and I was acting in a play there. Oh, right, yeah. And, um, and then I. What, what kind of um, acting was that? Was that. Was that like normal acting? Was it kind of more avant-garde acting or...? Oh yeah, it's just fringe, total fringe. It was like um, spontaneous acting. It, it wasn't even a really a proper structured play, but I was. I used to go to the drama classes there and then I sort of started going to the Oval House and we just used to watch fringe. And then we used to, and then I was started to do a bit in fringe. And then I was in Bath and I was part, I was involved in the Bath Arts Workshop. It was all before punk. Oh yeah, when, what, when was this about 72, 73? Yeah, in the, yeah. Early, in the 70s and I was in, um, the Johnny Rondo trio, which was a, dra- a jazz quartet. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was in that, in before punk. Was this all in Bath? Yeah. In Bath, in Somerset. Um, and I was the DJ there as well, in the sort of local hippie pub, the Hat and Fair. What sort of music were you playing when you were DJing? Wild Thing by the Trogs, oh, my favourite. That's such a great record, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was my favourite. And then obviously we'd do maybe Diamond Dogs. You know, David Bowie's Diamond yeah. Dogs, and we'd do maybe Roxy music. I used to do that. I used to take it in turns with my friends. Um, Is that the kind of music you were into at the time? Yeah, I, I was very much into, well, Roxy music played at the Bath Arts Festival, so we got to see a lot of these bands before they were famous. Yeah. So that's, I suppose, we were influenced by that. Um, but it, that was also, we considered that, that was a combination of fringe theatre and music. So know? were you kind of a bit of a hippie then, hippie-ish? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, the, the hippie 
movement is kind of probably really dead, but in England there were still lots of kids my age that were sort of post-hippies. Yeah. It's like you've got post-punks now. Yeah. So I, I basically just did that whole sort of hippie thing for a year, and I did it, I really did it for real, you know, like, um, you know, bathing in streams and living on ferns, and, you know, I just lived on the land. I did it for one year until the winter. And then I met lots of people and sort of creative people, and then I got, then I settled in Bath for a bit and got involved with the Bath Arts Workshop. And I was always around very creative, alternative people, really. And then I came back to London and I made some demos which were... Well, when uh, did you come back to uh, London? Where was that? Sorry? Well, where was that? When did you come back to London? Um, I think it was about 74 or something, 74, right. 75, yeah. something like that. So you, you're making your own music about this point now, you won't go back well, to I London? I was making it because I was just, I was just sort of... Um, with different musicians in Bath. So it wasn't really my own music, like that jazz trio that I was in. I was really just a singer in that. Yeah. But I, I was writing, still writing songs. So by the time I came back to London, I had some songs already written that I wanted to record. And I, I just write really quickly and easily anyway. Then I started working with session musicians and people from The Pretty Things. Yeah. And um, that whole sort of, that, that whole thing. But I wasn't really, oh, and, and uh, I did a demo. I did a demo about Bondage before I did it with x ray Oh, really? So what was this, about 75? Yeah, I did it with uh, Brian Moore, Gary Moore. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, I never knew that. The first time I never, that, that, that was the original, but I don't know whatever happened to that. But, yeah, I was making demos with Gary Moore and people like so that. So what was that like? Did that sound, uh, did that sound like the final? Was it like a kind of slower version or? Yeah, it was. <laughs> because Gary's like an amazing guitarist but it's yeah. a bit bluesy so I didn't think it was the right sound myself they, I always felt that they were the sounds too sophisticated which is why I worked with um, formed a band where I formed X-Ray Specs because I just wanted it to be because they were all coming from progressive rock and really virtuoso musicians and I you know I was, bit, I was quite a bit younger than them and I, I was into the three, at the time, I was into the three-minute sort of instant, you know, amphetamine thing, really. I wanted it quick and fast and short because we were getting quite bored at all the progressive rock things. Yeah. With the endless guitar solos. And the bands, and I used to go and see that and used to think, wouldn't it be better if it was just like short and snappy and, and just fast and you don't talk that much to the audience? So, you know, I've been around, done, done all my homework, before I put X-ray specs together, and it worked for a younger audience. But I think as you get older, you change, and you realise there were some things in the progressive rock which was cool, which would be too, too pretentious and too boring, or sort of like up itself. But at the same time, when it's just you know three-minute little riffs, you know, which was like old-fashioned rock and roll, like the Ramones, um, that also gets boring as well. Some where along the line I try to manage marry the two things together. Then, uh, did you go to Ireland then 
something then? No, no, oh, no. I'm living in here. You still living in here. All right, so, so you're in London. You're trying to get... So you, you're going out as... What was the name of your... Um, no, what? I'm just making demos. I was uh, just working with these people in... Was it under your, under your real name then? Yeah. Well, yeah, I had I did do a bit. I did something with GT Moore and the Reggae Guitars. Yeah. Some of them were actually playing on some of that translucent stuff that's on Flower Aeroplane. And, um... You know, obviously I liked reggae as well because I grew up in Brixton. Yeah. So I was heavily into that too. There really wasn't very much that I wasn't into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I liked all kinds of things. And um, it's just about being curious, isn't it? Yeah. And inquiring and sort of wanting to know, you know, and take a bit from this culture and a bit from that, from that culture. And I suppose really that's what progressive rock was, except it got a bit too boring. So you doing your um, close to all this point? Sorry? Were you doing uh, your, your store at this point? Oh, I did that sort of when I was more involved in actually putting X-Ray Specs together as a band. Because I, I, I was working in, because I always used to have a day job as well, so I was, doing, I was working in, as a temp, I used to be a temp, sort of typing, secretarial work. And then in the evenings, I used to go to the studios and do de make demos. Yeah. And then, I, and then I got fed up with my day job, and so I try to do that that fashion thing yes yeah, so the market as my day job and then do my music in the evening and it worked quite well it didn't make a lot of money but it worked quite well because it meant that i had a lot of stage clothes to wear <laughs> yeah. them in the same time. <laughs> so this is about what 76 is this yeah yeah i think so i, mean, I don't know that can't really remember the exact dates but i think it was about 76 and 76 to 77 yeah. when I started playing at the Man in the Moon uh, which was next door to the clothes shop oh yeah so, next door to both at market so when you, actually when you were doing your um, kind of pre-punk kind of solo stuff did you actually get a deal with that at all? no no so you just kind of yes, shopped yes I did yes I did actually I did I'm sorry I did I had a deal with GTO which was Billy Ocean's label oh weird yeah did you get I, I kept getting because I'm sort of mixed race yeah I kept getting it was mainly um, the artists that had black labels that liked me. Black artists that, that liked that would be interested in me. So it would be even though I wasn't really playing traditionally sort of solely music. I liked Motown obviously, but um, but for instance, it was the Motown people at EMI that liked Save Bondage Up Yours, the final version. Yeah. Because I suppose they still it still had a, a strong voice, a sort of a little bit of that kind of voice where it went high, although I didn't think it did. And I was trying to be really English on it and speak with a regional accent, a single yeah. regional accent. So I didn't think it was. But yeah, it was people at Motown that liked it, at the Motown side of EMI that liked it. So, mm -hmm. so uh, yes, so we're in 76 now and uh, you've got your clothes store going. And uh, so, so it's, are you aware of punk coming along here? In 76? Yeah. Well, I saw the Sex Pistols, but they weren't really punk then. Well, they weren't called punk. I saw them on my birthday in, 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 on Hastings Pier. They weren't famous. But so did they, they, they were the band, They were doing rock, uh, Rolling Stones covers mainly. When, I think Glenn Matlock was in the band then. He would have been then, yeah. Yeah. And they were doing Rolling Stones covers. So I saw them. I mean, the only difference between them and the people I was working with, say, like, you know, people that I, I was sort of mixing with in studios, were some people from, say, like, the Pretty Things, and they were all friends with, like, the Pink Floyd and Dave Gilmore, and, and it would be, they'd be with people 
like Les Zeppelin, those kind of, were the musicians that I was working with. So the difference between the Sex Pistols and the musicians that I was working with in the studios were, were the, the age. They yeah. were younger. <laughs> so, yes, so you saw the Pistols in Hastings Pier. Did that, that make you want to, that make you think you get a band together or just change direction or did it, did it have no effect at all or? It didn't have a huge effect, but it just made me think that I'd rather have a live band because they were doing it live. Yeah. They were young, they weren't famous or well-known, and it just meant that I didn't have to keep working with all these kind of quite well-established session musicians that I was working with, where it was all studio. So I, I liked the idea that you could just go out. And basically, they weren't very good, so I just thought, well, you know, Maybe it doesn't have to be so polished. It yeah. Should be, it should be a bit, a bit rawer. So do you, you start putting the band together at this point then? Um, I did, yeah. I, I, well, I decided I was already with a label, GTO, but I decided to do, to go to, to yeah, I just thought I wanted to have a band. And then I met John Savage. Oh, I know John, yeah. And um, he started taking me to... Well, he took me to the Clash gig, which is just around the corner from where I lived in Fulham. Yeah. And um, and he's also took me to the Roxy. Yeah. With, with Falcon. So really, he introduced Falcon into that punk world and me as well, because it certainly wasn't a world that I belonged to. So this is like late '76, I guess, isn't it? Um. Yeah, I guess it is. I can't remember the exact date. I mean, I don't know what the, they've got the date at the live at the Roxy, but pretty much I, I was playing, as I only went there, down there once. Um, I was playing the next week, I think. Wow, so that's the amazing thing about that period, how fast everything moves, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, actually Matt, just wait one minute, I've just got to turn the tape over. I'll just back on one minute. I've just got to go into the room, turn the tape over. Okay. So what song, did you have all the, you had all the songs, really, that are already written, aren't they, I guess? Well, I was writing them as I went along. I didn't have all of them. I didn't uh, have the day the world turned to Aglo. That came a bit later. It's about the first set you played the Roxy. Was that stuff that you had from I the... I had Bondage Up Yours, because I'd already done yeah, that with, um, with Gary Moore. I'd already been working that one through with him. And um, I, had, I had, I can't remember what I had. Identity came a bit later, day the world. I had most of them, but not all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had 1977. So I guess that's when it was. It was 1977, because that's when I did Plastic Bag. So that will be the year. Because I've been so long ago for me, I can't always remember. Yeah, it's 77, yeah. Yeah, so it must have been then, because that's when I would have written Plastic Bag. So yeah, it was 77. Because that's, that's the date that I put in the song. I'll probably put that in so I'd be able to remember it. <laughs> yeah, like a diary. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have the look as well already? Yeah, I got the look pretty quickly. I'm not sure. I mean, were you dressing like that before? Oh, really? No. Well, a little bit. You know, we used to wear anything and, and do everything, especially when we were in that fringe theatre period. Because, uh, you know, when Bath Arts Workshop, yeah. that's where that, you know, really started as far as dressing. 
because, you know, we used to shop in flea markets, so you just buy this, a bit of this, a bit of that, and you just mix it together and, and, and create a look. And it was all about creating your look and a different look and not having the same look twice. <laughs> You know, whereas now it's all pretty much, um, it's done for you, isn't it, team fashion? Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of exciting team fashion then, so um, we just used to create it. I mean, Bieber's had the most glamorous fashion, but she went out of business pretty quickly. So, so your, your, your look was like very much your own look, though, wasn't it? Well, I remember before I went to, I had long hair, very long curly hair, so I always used to look a bit like Mark Bolan when I was a teenager. Yeah. That's what I looked like, like a little Mark Bolan type character. That's how I naturally looked. But then when I did the um, punk rock thing, I decided to cut all my hair off, not because... I don't know why I did that. I thought it would just look better with, with the whole, whole thing. I think I cut it before I went to the Roxy. I certainly didn't have long hair at the Roxy, so I must have cut it before I did the Roxy. I felt I cut it before I went to the Man in the Moon. I remember exactly. I went to a barber's. I had it cut in a barber's in the King's Road. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, yeah. But, but up until that point, when I was doing all the other music, I had all the long corkscrew hair because... Um, that's the way I used to dress, just jeans, long curly hair and, and, and T-shirts. I mean, that's how everybody dressed. You know, that was the 70s. Yeah, but your look in the punk days was amazing. It was, like, really original. It, it, it was quite original at the time. I mean, um, it was, but also I, I, was, I met that girl, Sophia Horgan, that um, was a fashion student, so she did my very first... I mean, some of it I did myself and had my own looks, and a couple of times I wore some of her things, and yeah, she was a first year, fat, fat, or maybe, I don't know, she was um, obviously being very different and very influenced by David Bowie and Space Odyssey, and also probably the 60s as well, so she made those, those weird foam zip dresses and all that kind of stuff with the big zips across the top, which was, you know, they, they were her clothes, and I was selling them for her in my shop. Yeah. So I had them anyway. So you just started wearing them, yeah. <laughs> started wearing them and, and then she'd, come, she'd just come to the gigs and, and bring me a new outfit to wear you know backstage yeah literally we just used to all just put it on and wear it she used to <laughs> and, and you know she used to bring stuff for all of us not just for me but for the whole band she'd just come along uh, uh, back after a gig come backstage and then we used to all hang out together so we were like hanging out with her and then she was um, clothing us as well at the same time. I don't, I'm not sure how much money she got paid, but I know I was selling some things for us, but I guess she also wanted us to showcase her clothes for her. Yeah. You know, it was just like, it was just very open. There she was with her sewing machine and all her skills. And, um, and, and there I was with a few ideas and needing to... to well, having fun, really, wearing all this stuff. And it wasn't costing me, like, you know, I mean, I'm sure if I went round the corner to Vivian Westwood, it was... Very expensive, yeah. Out of my, out of my price range. Well, I like the way your clothes kind of complemented your music. It seemed to all fit together. Well, I think, I think she probably used to get, like, she'd come to the gigs and she probably got ideas from the songs. Yeah. As well, and so she'd make stuff that she probably thought that we'd like. Uh, your, your material 
Yeah, you always had this uh, consumerist thing you you go on about. Well, I was into that at the time, specifically because I'd been in those um, earth beds. Yeah. And I'd done all the whole technique back to nature thing. And then when I came into London, back so what was what was the back to nature thing you were doing? What's that? Well, I was in back. To, you know, I mean, like living on the land. Like when I when I was um, doing the whole sort of. Hippie trail thing on oh, the right. countryside. Was this in Bath then? Yeah. I, um, yeah. Before that was like Devon, Somerset. Was, we were living literally in on the land, and we were eating ferns and and drinking stinging nettle tea, and it, uh, we were maybe, you know we were living on the land. Oh, cool. Yeah. So yeah. we did this hot for summer. We did that and bathing in streams and and just um, being complete sort of nature thing, that's what I call it, back to nature, trying yeah. to live back to nature, so after doing that and then coming back into London, although it, it isn't as, wasn't as consumer orientated as it is today, it still was, there were a lot of tacky things, you know, um, that sort of hit me and stood out, especially in markets and the level of plastic, cheap plastic, maybe it was all coming in from China or I don't know where it was. But it was a lot of cheap, tacky plastic consumer goods. And so it just hit me in the face. So I started writing about it. Yeah. And just sort of commenting on it, you know, like nylon curtains and and just all the things as well that I'd grown up with in my youth, like Weetabix and Kleenex, which are, are not really... I, mean, I remember I got, got into trouble with that with some of the TV stations saying that we were advertising. <laughs> right. And I wasn't. I was just trying to create a diary of the time. You know, like when you... It's like if you paint a picture and you say, you're, you're, you know, why should I be painting, um, you know, pretending I'm living in another age? Yeah. You know, like trying to be neoclassical when everything around me is modern. Yeah. Like painting a picture with words, so describing the environment, and maybe even being a little bit futuristic, because I think that's why people think it's ahead of its time. You know, they think it still holds up today, because it's probably more true now, like songs like Artificial and those kind of songs. Oh, even more, it's got worse. imagination, you know, what it could be and what it could be about. 
But the whole theme of bondage for me, because I have to come from quite a religious background, it's in the Bible, it's like all the way through. And it's also in the scriptures that I study from India about the bondage and the whole idea of, bond of liberation. The whole idea of being liberated is to become free from the bondage of the material world. At that stage, I hadn't really gone into bondage that far, you know, like the real spiritual aspects of, of bondage or incarnation yeah. or that. I hadn't gone that far. But I certainly had an idea of bondage through physical limitations, you know, such as slavery and suffragettes. I mean, you know, I grew up with all those images in history. In history class, you saw it, suffragettes chaining themselves to the walls of Buckingham Palace. And you know, we just grew up with that whole theme. And then we often used to see slaves, you know, being chained up. And, you know, they couldn't remember the anti-slavery movement started in England. It was, it was the English that abolished slavery. And um, so I just had all that imagery. And then when I saw Vivian Westwood, who's, her shop was just around the corner from mine, and I saw all her bondage trousers, then that just, like, that just sort of, that just, for me, I don't know what she was trying to do, whether she was trying to be expressive or, or whatever, but it just symbolised all the other bondage elements that I'd grown up with. And so I wrote, oh, bondage up yours. Yeah, that's, I mean, I like that. I like the way the imagery's mixed. Yeah, and then, I, and then I did that bit about um, the consumerism, because I also found that bondage, not, you know, like a chain smoke, cha chain smoke, chain store, chain gang, or whatever, chain smoke, I can see you all, chain gang, chain mail. That as well, because I definitely, that's why I became a hippie, really, when I was, because I, I was working in the fashion industry as a junior buyer. I could have gone on and stayed in that, and I just remember the rush hour, and everybody, I used to sort of stand there with my friends, we'd be at Oxford Circus, and we'd be like having to go down the tube or catch the bus home. And it was like everybody seemed like they were in what, what I call wage slaves, which is, you know, it's not it's not terrible, but it's like you never ever earn enough money. You always only earn enough just to keep you alive, and then you've got to go back to work the next week. You never really advance that far. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're in bondage, like, all the time, you know? So it's not much different than serfdom, except that instead of being on the land, the serf on the land's in bondage, you're a serf to big business. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's how I felt a bit. And to me, consumerism was like keeping that whole thing going, you know, because you have to build factories and people have got to work in the factories. And it was one way you can say it creates jobs, but on another way you can say, you know, if you become a hippie or a dropout, as they used to call us, which I did, it means that you actually, you want to escape the rat race. Yeah. And that was around in songs like Bob Marley, wasn't it? He'd, he'd write things like, oh, what a rat race. Cheese, it would be sliced on a on a scale, and it would be in the. Bread. 
brown paper bag and gradually you see this whole thing, you know. And it, it all, to me, it all started when they started using those fluorescent cards to advertise things, you know. And that's why I called it Dayglow. And then they started making Dayglow socks. And it was great for some things, like not getting run, knocked over at night, getting run down. And I liked it myself. I used to use it myself, you know. I used to like those pens. I used to buy all those Dayglow pens. They could still get them. I think they were coming in from the USA. But there was this whole thing, and that Dayglow symbolized the shift of, of sort of from natural materials to really synthetic. And that's why I put, you know, synthetic fiber seeds to relieve itself from the rayon trees, because all the fibers, all, all the clothes, you know, you, you're not buying Egyptian cotton anymore, or, or um, you know what I mean? You're buying this new, and you know, do you remember Brian Nylon? Oh, yeah, yeah. Brian Nylon, yeah, British Nylon, and all byproducts of oil, I think, are they not? And there's this whole new thing that was coming about, and you know, I remember, like in the 60s, I think it was, the late 60s, you know, if you did wear a crimpling dress, never dated and it really fitted that time as well the uh, way people were thinking and things I think you captured it really well well I think that's what an artist is supposed to do and, and I don't really think I was trying to say much more than rather describe in other words I think I was trying to be an artist with words as opposed to um, you know pictures because I like art a lot I wanted to be an artist and I'm not a great artist technically I don't have a great hand for fine detail, I'm good at designs and overall things and colours, but I'm not, you know, I could be a fine artist, so writing would be an easier way for me to paint a picture with words than it would be to do it with a paintbrush. Yeah. Because I don't have the skills, really, maybe if I really worked with it and developed it, but just it was a quicker, easier format of painting for me with words rather than pictures. Yeah, it was, well, it was effective. <laughs> so, it's visual. I think it's just also the way you think, you know, as well, I suppose, maybe if you've grown up with... See, if you look at old poetry like Wordsworth and all the and romantic poetry, it's all more about feelings and emotions. Yeah. Whereas if you've grown up with television, and I don't think I grew up with it early on, but I grew up with it maybe... Maybe we've got a TV when I was about eight. So the eyes being trained, you've been trained to see things visually. So, you know, maybe not everybody has. Where I think a lot of the new pop songs are all still about emotions now. They're not really about painting pictures with words. Yeah. Not a lot. People like Bowie did a little bit. Um, but most of it is about emotions, which is, is nothing wrong with emotions, but I just wanted to do something that I thought was modern. So what's so the punk times? Uh, what, was it, what was the actual life like? You, you talked. Do you, do you actually talk quite a lot? We did an awful lot of um, live work. I mean, probably a bit too much. 
Um, we certainly played lots of small venues regularly, maybe yeah. even two or three a week, I think. Yeah. We started out with a residency at the Man in the Moon, which was once a week. And then we'd get asked to play all over the place, and we just used to literally just do it. And then, it just, when we went signed to EMI International, we weren't signed to EMI UK, we were signed to EMI International. But then we were asked to do a lot abroad. Yeah. Go to Germany and play, mainly TV, Sweden and play. And then Japanese people would come over, which is why I have quite an international following still, because I, play, I didn't play in all of those countries, I played in several, but... Um, but mainly on television and those kind of places, except for New York, where we played at CBGB's on the Bowery. Oh, did you get to America then? Yeah. Yeah, we played there, and um, but you know, it was never filmed or anything, so we don't have a lot of record because if we were all pre-video. Yeah, yeah, it's a totally different time, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, okay, I think, I think that's most stuff I'm gonna need there. That's really good. Is it? Yeah, it's fantastic stuff there. Yeah. Oh, well, good. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to the John Robb tapes of me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates. Thanks for listening. Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. (laughs) 